0: Thank you please have a seat there was a, a line in the song that we've just sung i'll see if i can find the words here that lead us nicely into our message this morning, then go to a world that is dying. I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here, and that is that pretty much everyone here is familiar with the Great Commission. The visible feedback is not all that encouraging. <laughs> okay. Yes, for, for the most part, people, I would hope, at least in our church, those who are regularly here, will be familiar with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, where Jesus speaking to his disciples said go out into the world and make disciples baptizing them into the name of the father son and spirit teaching to obey all that i've commanded you and as followers of jesus as disciples ourselves we understand that this commission applies to us that we're to go out into the world as the song just said there his praises to tell one of the most important tasks that jesus has given us but let me ask you a question and feel free to answer this question honestly But don't do it in a way that the person next to you uh, can kind of pick up because um, this is an opportunity to be brutally honest the question is have messages that drill into this idea you know this idea that we are to be witnesses that we're to go out into all the world to share the love of jesus with everyone encouraged you or left you feeling guilty I heard someone actually articulate the answer over here. Um have they have they the times where we've we've encouraged exhorted uh, preached on this topic have they left you feeling an increased sense of guilt because you find it difficult to do what's being exhorted I rather suspect if we stripped away the church masks that we wear and were completely transparent there would be lots of people here and I include myself who would say That going about the business of fulfilling the Great Commission is actually jolly hard work let's be honest for a moment this idea that we go out and share the gospel that we witness that we talk to our friends and our neighbors that we that we uh, communicate Christ in some way uh, is actually quite tricky intellectually we acknowledge uh, or agree with the exhortations the Great Commission is the Great Commission we can't sort of scrub it out of our Bible that would be wrong Uh, It's the task of every Christian to be a witness for Christ, the job of sharing the good news. is not just for the religious professionals, it's not just something you can handball and say, Matt, you do it, David, you do it, or whoever, it's for all of us. We know this, we agree with this, with our mouths we confess this. But I suspect too often we carry a deep sense of guilt because when it actually comes to participating in the mission in the way that we sometimes think of it, we struggle it's hard it's challenging i know myself if i raise uh, issues relating to christian faith or christianity with some family members it's going to be received quite poorly and some of you might uh, might find that true for you as well i'd love to be able to have a conversation with a non-believer about faith and and there are actually times when we've practiced doing this even here at church but isn't it true, you know, you, you get into those situations and, and there seems like there's an opportunity, I don't know what to say, how to answer that question, what words are going to come out and when the words do come out, they come out all clunky and kind of like, oh my goodness, what did I just say? Tongue tied, confused, is it any wonder uh, the other person kind of might look at us a little bit bemused sometimes? And I'm really happy to go dropping tracks in letterboxes or leave them on the table in the waiting room at the doctor's surgery or wherever, but heaven help me if someone actually stops and says, what's this all about? That's a challenge. Do these things resonate with any of you? I suspect that they do. And I have used examples that are not hypothetical examples either, by the way. They are very real examples. Today, um, I, I have a dilemma because I want to talk about uh, the call to make disciples as one of the primary purposes of the church. One of the key things that we are called to do. Last week, Matt talked about worship as one of the key things that we're called to do. Next week, Roderick, bless him, he's going to talk about um, bringing shalom into the community as one of the key things that we do as a church. Today, I wanted to talk about uh, witnessing, making disciples as one of the key purposes of the church. And I landed on a passage that I'll have a look at with you in a moment, Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 and 29 which is a a terrific passage a mission statement if you like that Paul articulates and through the week um, typically um, unfortunately depending on how you look at it the message preparation kind of gets crammed in around other things and by Thursday afternoon I had a great message ready to go and then I did one final read through it and at the end I thought what a load of rubbish (laughs) well no it wasn't actually theologically it was excellent Doctrinally, no problems. Um, It it said all of the right things, but I thought to myself, and this was a terrible realization at this time of the week, that if I preach this message, all I'm actually going to do is continue to shovel guilt on people. Because as I read it, my sense was it was shoveling guilt on me, because I realized just how far from the ideal I actually was myself. And so, what to do? Well, there's a problem. Wouldn't it be embarrassing to get up one Sunday morning and say, guess what everyone, it's half past ten, we're going to close with prayer. (laughs) You'd feel ripped off. The offerings would take a big dive next week. Well, actually, they might go the other way, I hadn't thought of that. first of all i started to think well we need to we need to acknowledge in this in this realization that the task of being witnesses for jesus is not an easy task second thing i had to kind of come to grips was is this it's the task for every christian it's not just for the religious professional so it must be possible for everyone it's not just for the elite few evangelists and then um, it's also important to be reminded and this is fairly critical too that the the task of proclamation which we'll talk about is not just to use words either and that's sometimes where we do get a bit hung up isn't it we use words when when we have to and they're important and they will continue to be important but that's not the only way so I went back to the passage which we'll have a look at uh, and here it is up on the screen for us Um, Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 and 29 Paul's mission statement if you like Uh, a statement that would serve us well as a mission statement here in the church. He is the one, Jesus is the one we proclaim, says Paul, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Isn't that a terrific verse? It captures in just a couple of statements what Paul's focus was and in some senses, what our focus is to be too. We're going to unpack this passage in a few moments. Before we do that, um, indulge me though, because it's always helpful to understand the background to a passage like this, a little bit of the, uh, the context. And so we're going to go for a moment uh, to the ancient world, to Colossae, the uh, the recipient of, the recipients rather, of this letter. The city of Colossae, just to give you a little bit of context, was in um, Asia Minor, it's the, it, around that place where Asia meets Europe, you know Istanbul, the crossover of two cultures, Istanbul, Byzantium up uh, to the north there, uh, not quite on the map but this gives you a bit of an idea and I hope you can actually see some of the names there because Colossae was a really strategic city before the time of Jesus, it was on trade routes, really helpful to be on a trade route, a bit like Uh, Aubrey-Wodonga used to be before the bypass. You know, every truck, every car used to go through. There's some really curious, just a little deviation here. Um, (laughs) If you, you know, you get off uh, the main route, even um, those who are from Barnawatha will know, on the side there's still a couple of old places with, with signage which is falling down, you know, hot food, all that kind of stuff. Uh, once upon a time that's where people would have stopped and Colossae was just like that it was an important city it was an important city too because uh, they produced a rich red wool cloth uh, in Colossae and it was well known throughout the world it started to struggle as a city around about 100 BC though because another city was planted Laodicea and we know Laodicea from the scriptures of course Uh, Laodicea became uh, a fairly important city only 15 kilometres away, a direct competitor for trade and so Colossae started to lose some of its importance and then rather unfortunately um, Colossae, Laodicea and Heriapolis which is also there on the map um, were totally destroyed in about AD 17 during the reign of Tiberius by an earthquake. Of course buildings are all built out of stone earthquake rattles the place, everything fell down, Uh, it was rebuilt um, but it never regained prominence. There was another earthquake in AD 60 which flattened the joint again, so it potentially in the living memory of two people, uh, one person, sorry, um, and it was never really uh, rebuilt to what it was and in around 400 AD it ceased to exist. And if you go to Colossae today you can uh, do a tour you'll find that it's a city that's really just open paddocks, a few random architectural features, archaeological things lying around. Now, I tell you all that because Colossae was a strategic city. There were uh, predominantly Greek people living in the city. It was at the crossroads of trade and so people from other places would have come and typically in those days, people would bring other religions into that city. And so the Christians in Colossae would have been... Uh, influenced, potentially, by these other ideas that were coming in, not just Jewish ideas but other pagan ideas as well. And so, if you have a look at the book of Colossians, and it's an easy read if you sat down and read it in one sitting, uh, you'll find that in this book, Paul emphasises that Jesus Christ is sufficient to make us complete. Jesus is enough, is the message of Colossians. You don't need other stuff and there were other stuff that uh, that was pushing in and we celebrate the sufficiency of Jesus as we gather around the table of communion that what Jesus has done by dying on the cross for us is enough and that was the message that Paul emphasized here in the book of Colossians in Colossians 119 for instance Paul said for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, that's a statement, isn't it? God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus was fully God and through him reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When you think about that, that's a remarkable achievement. What Jesus did on the cross that we will celebrate here in a moment was enough reconcile us with god and not just us but all things everyone everyone who's ever lived everyone who's ever born anyone who is yet to be born all things and so as members of his body we have everything that we need for as paul says in chapter 3 verse 11 of colossians christ is all and is in all we're going to do something a little unusual and celebrate communion as part of our message today and so i want to invite you just reflect with me about the sufficiency of christ that christ is all that we need and we're going to invite our musical team to come back up here and plug themselves back in again they're going to sing for us a song that will just help lead us as we come and receive communion those of you who are regulars with us will know typically when we receive communion uh, we just ask you to stand move to the center come down uh, take the bread and the cup from the table that's the front block here or if you're in the back block from the tables that are set up the back and then return to your seat. We invite you to do that again today. As we consider the sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus what Jesus has done on the cross as is reflected here with these elements is enough for us. Let's uh, ask you to stand. We don't need to sing. You can just enjoy listening and then come and receive these elements. Once everyone's back in their seats we'll pray. Uh, take the bread and eat that as a remembrance of the body of Christ given for us. Hold on to the cup that we might drink that together. Let's share this communion meal together as a response, a worshipful response to that wonderful message of the sufficiency of Christ. Thank you. Let's drink together. And just as the mountains bow down before you, Lord, we too bow before you, your humble servants, recipients of unmerited grace, enjoying the benefits of what you have done in reconciling all things to you. We glorify you, Jesus. We thank you that you are here with us and be glorified too as we continue to consider how we might be your witnesses in our world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you team. Let's uh, take a few moments then to have a look at the passage from Colossians and we're going to break it up into some, um, shall we say, digestible sections. And the first... Uh, if we move back to uh, the next slide, Liam, you might need to push the button for me. Oh no! Here we go. First thing, uh, just to reflect on, is is the content of the message that we carry into the world? For Paul says, we proclaim Him, we proclaim Jesus. We don't have to, uh, ha- we don't have to shape a system. We don't have to communicate tradition. We don't have to design doctrine or theology or an organization we're not promoting those things to people we're actually witnessing to a person and this is really significant god has given us the message and the message is jesus so as we're sharing our faith uh, we're not sharing anything other than the message of a person i was rather interested a few years ago I was doing some work with the Epsom Church, some of you might remember moderating, I was moderating a pastoral search for Epsom and so travelling backwards and forwards, it's about a two and a half hour drive each way, was listening to some podcasts and one of the most fascinating podcasts was one, and I'd love to go back and hear it again, not a Christian podcast, it was just a, a culture and society or something like that, talking about how big tobacco worldwide has been reshaping itself because there's been lots of pressure coming on in lots of countries including australia to say that smoking is harmful and so big tobacco has been reshaping itself to say we want to be the good guys here and help bring down uh, the uh, what's the word the incidence the the number of people smoking so we're going to offer this health product called vaping Seriously, there are executives in the offices, wherever they happen to be, we won't name any names, thinking about how to shape their message so that their message was more palatable to the world. And the podcast was drilling into the manner in which they were doing it. Now, I don't want to talk about that specifically, uh, rather, to illustrate that we don't have to sit here and think about how we're going to make our message palatable to the world. God's actually given us the message, the message Jesus. Our primary task is to proclaim Him. How do we proclaim Jesus? How did Paul proclaim Jesus? Well, the obvious answer that comes to mind is um, Paul preached in the marketplaces, Paul reasoned in the synagogues, Paul taught in home churches that he established. All very public and very word-reliant and strategies that might scare the life out of the average mortal. But Paul was also trained in rhetoric and not many of us are, so it's probably unreasonable To expect that we might necessarily follow in Paul's example, follow Paul's example by being very public Christians who debate unbelievers in Junction Place for instance. There are occasions where that might happen uh, but overall you might question the wisdom of rolling into a gathering of Hare Krishna for instance and starting an argument with them. I tried that once. (laughs) Actually I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. Typically, uh, in my former church, at lunchtime, I'd go for a walk if it was a nice day, a day like today. It wasn't far from the centre of town. And this particular day, I walked down the street. And here was a lone Hare Krishna, a young lady, who'd set up her, her wares, so to speak, uh, right in the intersection, probably the busiest intersection in the CBD, and was attracting people, you know, coming to... And I thought, this will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and started talking to her. And it became really obvious, really clearly, that we were poles apart. And then I thought, you know what, the longer I talk to her, the less chance she has to sow her heresies with someone else. So I just kept asking questions and engaging and it kind of, after a while, let me tell you, it it became really difficult because she clearly didn't want me there because I was stopping her from getting at other people. Was that wise? I don't know. Maybe... I was just indulging my penchant towards having an argument with someone every now and again. Maybe it wasn't that wise. <laughs> how did Paul proclaim Jesus? Well, Paul actually used lots of strategies proclaiming Jesus. Have a, a, a list of this one. 1 Thessalonians 1 1.5, Paul said to the Thess- Thessalonian Christians, uh, you know how we lived among you. You've become imitators of us and the Lord. Paul did life with the people and Paul let his life and his words proclaim Jesus. You'll notice that I said life and words because both are important in different contexts. But it's important to note that Paul not only proclaimed his faith, he lived it out in life. He demonstrated it by his actions, by his attitudes. For example, when Paul went to a place, he didn't just rely on the largesse, the good gifts of other Christians. He worked. He did his work of tent making he he put his hands to work rather than relying on others and so demonstrated a christian principle our staff were actually reminded this week and i found this really helpful that the the process of going to work is an act of worship and some of the questions that we might ask about you know how are we christians in the workplaces oh should i be talking to my friend you know do i do this should i hand out whatever actually doing your work is a christian act Doing your work well is a Christian act. Being diligent in work is an act of worship. It's worth thinking about that. Our integrity with our finances, our honesty in business, our compassion for people in need, all fruits of the Spirit at work within us and a strong proclamation of the one who we proclaim. Paul moves then to... Uh, the method in verse 28, the process of making disciples, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching. Teaching we get, but what about this word admonishing? There's a little bit of confusion around that, so let me illustrate what it might look like. Many years ago, uh, I had um, uh, a friend by the name of Peter who we'd been uh, doing a lot of work together uh, and we naturally fallen into a cohort of other people uh, a peer group that forms up in the context that we we're in. Peter was married and a, and some in that friendship group were single, single guys and single girls and we noticed as a group that Peter had become fairly close to one of the single girls. Nothing obviously inappropriate, just a little bit, no, I'm not sure what's going on. And one of, uh, one of the cohort came to me <laughs> and said, David, we need to perhaps do something about this which was a code word for saying, David, you need to do something about this (laughs) because I was probably the closest to him. And so I still remember to this day, one evening, uh, got together with my friend Peter and with some anxiety and with much prayer I sat privately with him and I said to him, uh, and I don't remember the exact words, but words along this line, Peter, we're just a little bit concerned about what appears to be on the outside perhaps something that could possibly be and I'm not sure whether it is it might be conditional kind of language inappropriate now you can imagine how that went down can't you actually it went down really well because he was a godly guy and I kind of approached it in a humble way didn't make any accusations no recriminations none of this you know this kind of stuff and absolutely none of this, God told me to tell you. Now, if anyone tries that stunt with me generally, this is my response. Well, if God told you, he can tell me too. <laughs> All right? But Peter responded with humility and I'm greatly, uh, uh, deeply grateful for that because um, he made some immediate corrections to his behaviour and, uh, and I felt relieved because admonishing someone is hard work. And to do it in a godly way is really tricky and it's not for the faint-hearted either. Paul says in Acts chapter 20 verse 31, this is Paul's words, I never stopped warning you, I never stopped admonishing you day and night with tears. It caused great pain for Paul to do this, admonishing or warning another person can be costly to the one doing it. It simply means to warn It's a gentle warning to come back to the central tenets of faith or to right worship or belief or whatever, or right action. It's a strong word, it's not as strong as rebuke. And if you've got Colossians open there, you'll see that Paul does it on a number of occasions with the Colossian Christians. In verse 8, for instance, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ, calling people back to Jesus. Teaching and admonishing. There's quite a number of uh, examples there in Colossians chapter 2. It's hard and it's easy to get it wrong. Admonishing someone or warning someone else is not just about telling them how it is. You can speak strongly without attention to God's Word and basically make a mess of it. To warn somebody else in a godly way needs to be done with direct reference to God's Word and with an incredible reliance on God's Spirit, with deep humility and with the awareness that, in pointing to the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, there just might be a sawmill in yours that you need to deal with yourself. But teaching and admonishing, Paul says, are an important process in the disciple-making process, if I can use that word again. Let's talk about the manner because Paul speaks about this in this passage as well. We proclaim Christ, we admonish and teach with all wisdom. Now, there's lots that we, we could say about wisdom and how wisdom is to be at the centre of admonishing and teaching. But if we go back to chapter 1, verse 9, we get a bit of a clue uh, about what Paul meant when he said we admonish and teach with wisdom. For here in verse 9, Paul told the Colossians what it was that he was praying for. And he said, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding. See, wisdom, spiritual wisdom, is linked to an understanding of God's will and we see its fruit described here in verse 9. And I paraphrase this, uh, for Paul said, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, that you may please him in every way, that you may bear good fruit in every good work, that you might grow in the knowledge of God, that you might be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you might have great endurance and patience and give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. You can go back and read all that again if you like to. But wisdom uh, has characteristics that ought to be present and those are some of those characteristics described by Paul there. And then in the passage we come to the motivation, whoops, not too far. Paul says this, uh, these things, we, uh, we do these things so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now here we need to be really clear about our theology. What does it mean when Paul says to present everyone perfect in Christ? When a person surrenders their lives to Jesus, they're made perfect in Christ, When they repent and confess their sin, the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross are applied to their lives. They are situationally perfect in Christ. It's a matter of absolute certainty that when a person stands before God, they are justified, they are made right in God's sight, their sins and rebellion have been forgiven, and they're fit and ready for heaven. Faith and trust in Jesus is all you need. Paul said that over and over and over in this passage. There's nothing you or I can do to make that person more perfect So, why did Paul say uh, one of the motives for making disciples is to present everyone perfect in Christ? And the answer to that is because one of the signs of Christian maturity is putting into practice what you already are in position. Let me put that another way to make it uh, clearer. If you really are a Christian, this will be lived out in your daily life. And so, presenting people perfect in Christ is a way of saying... We want people to grow in practical, personally experienced Christ-likeness and to live it out in day-to-day life. In other words, to help Christians be Christians. That's part of our task. Paul said this another way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6-7. to 7. He said, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness continue to live in him rooted and built up in him strengthened in the faith growing and manifesting uh, those actions that characteristics that are truly demonstrating what's happened to you inside and then finally we come to uh, the model where paul says to this end i labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me if there's one thing that should encourage us sorry, one thing that should encourage us in this passage, it ought to be this, to know that even the great Apostle Paul struggled. Even Paul wrestled to do this. And the only way that he was effective was by relying on the energy of God's Spirit at work within him. That's significant, because we don't do this on our own. I had a conversation uh, this week with a young guy Um, I've had opportunity to meet a couple of times with him over these past few weeks Um, and he said you know a a week or two ago and I shared this I think at the night time I'm not religious I don't want you know I'm happy to let others talk but I'm not a religious person well this week um, it was just one-on-one him and me and um, he asked me a rather interesting question he said to me so you've been a Christian all your life what would you say are the benefits of having been a christian for all these years over someone that hasn't been this is coming from a guy who wants nothing to do with religion right what would you say don't don't articulate your answer because you make me feel bad because it was one of those moments where i was kind of wrestling with how do i lord how do i answer this is a big question this is enormous this is from a guy who doesn't want anything to do with religion this could be the opening, the moment. All these things and many others are going through my head. And uh, look, if I went back and, and, and watched a video recording of that conversation, I'd be embarrassed because I kind of fluffed around, tried to, you know, sort of listen and there's, there's hope and all that kind of stuff. There, I'm sure there could have been a textbook answer, but I don't have it. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't need to do that. Because as Paul says in this passage here, I labour, I struggle with the energy that powerfully works in me. It's actually God that does the work, finally. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have a perfect answer. I don't have to have exactly the right words. That's not to say I should be lazy or laissez-faire in my approach. Absolutely not. Do the best that you can. Be well-equipped, ready. Uh, uh, Think about what you're going to say. But in those spaces where I have failed, I am confident that God is able. And there's the confidence that we have, the assurance that we have. As we proclaim Christ, even when we stumble and we fumble and we make a mess of things and we think, oh, I could have done this, I should have done that, the Spirit of God is at work. Thank you, Lord, for that. Because we need that. We rely on that and God works through that. God's energy is at work in a person who humbles themselves and makes themselves available, even at personal cost. And so the great commission that we so wrestle with can be fulfilled. Let me encourage you this week to think through some of these things, to take this passage from Colossians 1, 28 to 29, perhaps to reflect on it a little bit, to think through it. What does it actually mean for you in your place this week to proclaim Christ, perhaps in a way that's a little different to what sometimes we've shaped it as? And consider how God might use that, those opportunities, wherever they might be. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your commission to us is, uh, is for all of us.